If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexa Von Tobel, your host. This week, I'm excited for you to meet Kurt House, the co-founder and CEO of Cobold Metals an AI-driven mineral exploration company. Cobalt's mission is to accelerate discovery of critical materials needed for the energy transition. Cobalt Metals combines leading mineral explorers with an outstanding team of data scientists and software engineers hailing from Apple, Google, and other Silicon Valley companies. In the four years since its founding, Cobalt has built a portfolio of over 50 projects on three continents and has developed lasting partnerships such as BHP and Rio Tinto. Throughout his career, Kurt has been an entrepreneur at the interface of technology and natural resources. He previously founded a carbon sequestration company and his enhanced oil recovery business, as well as the direct investment platform to acquire North American natural assets. Kurt has been an adjunct professor at Stanford University's Energy Resource Engineering Department. Previously, he's a research fellow at MIT, where he studied chemistry and physics of CH2 kappa and storage. He received his PhD from Harvard University for his work in applied math and earth science and his BA in physics from Claremont Colleges. Kurt has also worked in private equity and corporate advising for Bain & Company. And with that, let's welcome Kurt. Kurt, first of all, I'm so excited to have you here. Let's go to the beginning. How'd you end up coming up with this idea? So uh, the idea came out of a series of conversations that I had with my co-founders and principally uh, Josh Goldman, the current president of the company. We actually knew, known each other for years. We went to grad school together and a couple independent things sort of catalyzed. One was, so this was really 2017 when the, when the brainstorming started in earnest. One was we decided we definitely wanted to fully divest ourselves from fossil fuel work entirely. We wanted to work exclusively on things that contributed to the solution and not to the problem. Thing two, we saw the EV revolution coming together. There were several watersheds in the mid-teens that made it clear that this was coming. It's obviously a necessary but insufficient condition for addressing climate change and fully transitioning the energy economy from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable uh, and electrified economy. There were clear signals. This was happening and happening faster than a lot of people were expecting. It does not take uh, a lot of brain power to go from there to uh, we're going to need a huge amount of very specific key materials that are very difficult to substitute, do things really well because of their physical properties. And so we just started doing some arithmetic and basically like, oh, actually, the critical material shortfall is going to restrict the pace of electric vehicle uh, adoptions and rollout. So that, that was the main catalyst. Um, the second, there's an independent axis to this. The independent dimension is, what if the incumbent industry is just good at this? What if they're just going to accelerate discoveries and supply all the material needed? The interesting thing is that the 
incumbent industry at the time, and it's still mostly the case, isn't even trying, actually. So unlike the oil and gas industry that's largely vertically integrated, so the major oil and gas players do everything from very original exploration and project project generation development all the way through operations and even retail sales, um, the metals and mining business has, over the last generation, has largely vertically disintegrated. So the, the major mining houses of the world are mostly construction and operations firms. They mostly play at the end of the value chain. And they've outsourced, uh, they've outsourced exploration to a very, very long tail of very small prospecting firms, generally known as the mining juniors. Uh, these companies tend to be very poorly capitalized and kind of focusing on trying to get a, one particular project through some, some stage gates. They're basically project developers or prospecting firms. None of those entities are investing in new technologies and new techniques to improve the efficacy and the efficiency of the exploration process to accelerate discovery. None of them are. They're not even trying. This is a problem and therefore an enormous opportunity and we need to jump in with both feet. Can you walk us through exactly what COBOL does? Yeah. So the mineral exploration industry, right? The, what is it trying to do? Is trying to find locations in the Earth's crust where there's anomalously high concentrations of particular elements. Right. So right underneath your feet right now, Alexa, there is gold, there's uranium, there's lithium, there's cobalt, there's everything you can imagine right underneath your feet. But it's all in very low concentrations. So it would be uneconomic to mine or develop. But in certain places, nature has done the hard work uh, through very selective and specific sets of chemical reactions, they've uh, concentrated uh, certain elements into enormously high concentrations relative to background. So that's the goal of, of mineral exploration and has been for really thousands of years is finding those places with anomalously high concentrations. The industry today is still very much in the in the paper map and ye yellow pages world, right? Where they are the, sort of just manually in a bespoke way, kind of hunting and pecking around. And what we're trying to do is take all of the information that humans have collected about the physics and the chemistry of the Earth's crust for hundreds, even thousands of years, aggregate it all, structure it all in a way that is universally in, uh, interrogatable uh, by humans and by algorithms, right? And make it all at the, uh, the scientists' fingertips so that they can systematically move around the Earth's crust and systematically look look at the composition of the Earth's crust everywhere from continent to continent. And the end goal would be that it would be as fluid as your Google Maps app, which just tells you exactly where every street is and every house is and every retail establishment is. So Kurt, I want to break this down into like simple terms that everybody listening can really understand. How do you do that? And I know you have a product, TerraShed SM. Um, walk us through this comprehensive data system. Give us a sense of how it works. Yeah, here, here, here's a simple one. So the, the Earth's gravitational field actually is not the same as you move around the surface of the Earth. And it's not the same for two different reasons. One, your elevation changes. If you go to the top of the Mount Everest, it's going to be different than in the bottom of Death Valley, uh, right? It depends on how much mass is between you and the center of the Earth, right? Um, that's thing one. And thing two, uh, the material itself differs in density. It's an indirect measure, but it tells you something. It tells you something about the distribution of the density of the Earth's crust. 
but we have to adjust for elevation. So first we have a map, we have a very accurate map of the topology of the Earth's surface. That's easy because I mean, it's not easy, but it's, it's relatively easy. Uh, and then humans have, have made measurements of the Earth's gravitational field all over the place, uh, from satellites, from airplanes, from handheld devices. Uh, they've done this for decades, actually. But all these measurements have been made. What we are doing is we're aggregating all of those old measurements because they are, they're almost always in the public domain, which I can explain. We aggregate all those measurements. We adjust for technology type, vintage, et cetera. And they have different sort of air bars. And then we can come up with an actually a more holistic view of where the gravitational anomalies are. Right. And that tells you something. It doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you something. It tells you, oh, this is interesting. We have these weird and we have these weird density anomalies in, in these locations. Now let's take a let's take it one step deeper. Imagine for a moment, just imagine to make it really simple, you're in space, so there's nothing else around you. You're measuring a force of gravity, and there's a small object close to you. There's nothing else. Now I just take that small object, I move it further from you, and I make it bigger. I can tweak the distance and the relative sizes of those such that the gravitational force that's pulling on you or on your on your instrument at that location is exactly the same. The two different two different objects but different sizes and different distances are giving the exact same measurement. That's a problem, right? That's, that means that you have, every time you make, a, you make a gravitational measurement, you have this non-uniqueness problem. So we take that and we've invented a whole new class of technology uh, we call stochastic inversions. It's a bunch of techies to speak, but what it means is we can take all those measurements and we know that there's a large number of valid solutions. I mean, there's a large number of density distributions that do replicate the measurement. And there's a much larger class of density distributions that don't replicate the measurement. We can actually de determine all of those. So we can dramatically narrow the search space. We can say, yes, there's a huge number of possible solutions here, but we know what the possible solutions are. And we know what the impossible solutions are. And that's a technology that actually only Cobalt has. The uh, st industry standard technology is somebody just kind of uses their best guess and comes up with one answer. Uh, and that's actually, that's actually doesn't make any sense uh, because there are thousands and thousands of valid and discrete possible solutions. And it's really important that you represent all of them. Okay. I want to go and talk a little bit about your team. So one of the things I love about your approach, two thirds of your team come from tech and data background. And then one third of the team is experienced explorers. First of all, what the heck is an experienced explorer? Like I, what does that mean? And then how does that outside perspective of having the explorers on the team help you guys make better decisions? The experienced explorers, the, these, are, these are people who have worked, who have spent their careers uh, working in, in the mineral exploration business. They're the best in the world at what they do. We've, we've managed to hire pe people that have made some of the most significant copper, nickel, zinc discoveries of the last generation. The heart and soul of the company are the experienced explorers. And then we augment them with the best and brightest out of Silicon Valley and elsewhere. One thing that Kobold does that is kind of almost a central dogma uh, at the company is experienced explorers do not lead exploration projects. Exploration projects are co-led by one data scientist and one experienced explorationist. Cobalt, what we try to say is, we try to keep the language, we're all explorationists. We're all just explorationists. That's our business model. Our business model, we do not sell our uh, services. We do not sell insights. We do not open up our platform for other users. We, we invent technology, and then we deploy that technology to make, for our own book, to make, to make discoveries. Either 
we eat what we kill. We either make discoveries or we don't succeed as the company. Co-leading exploration teams, the data scientists and geoscientists, is actually quite a radical thing. Uh, lots of, I, I would say basically every major industrial company in the world, far beyond metals and mining, they all have some kind of data analytics, data science initiative or movement almost exclusively, they are a different team, right? They are sort of, the, oh, that's the data analytics team, that's the data science team, and they're supposed to do something sort of in parallel with, with the conventional approaches and techniques. And we fully sort of reject that concept. Data scientists have to be making exploration decisions. They have to be there with the geoscientist making exploration decisions. The problems we're working on are so hard. They're so much harder than a typical kind of consumer product uh, company. We absolutely cannot rely on a sort of layer of product managers sort of going in between, you know, a data, data team and geoscience team, like explaining features or something like that. That's that's it just doesn't make any sense. So the people inventing those technologies have to be actually making those decisions. That's our view. What's obvious to you? I'd love to get a sense of your predictions of what's coming. I'd love to get a sense of the future of climate tech from your point of view. Oh, that's a great question. One of the most significant technological revolutions of our lifetimes is the solar cost curve. There's good papers on this to show how much the cost curve, what actually transpired in the teens, how, how, how rapidly the cost of solar came down. Uh, and it blew, blew away basically every single most optimistic forecast. It had a combined annual growth rate of about 15% from 2010 to 2020, something like that, uh, which for industrial deployment is insane. There's in staggering kind of growth. It's grown a hundredfold. What's really come into focus, I think, over the last decade and is that we know how to solve climate change now. Climate change really is about electrifying the economy. Uh, it's about converting everything you do uh, to, to some original electrified source and then having a fully renewable grid. That was not that obvious in the aughts because the cost of renewable energy was so expensive. Uh, I spent many, many years of my life working on a technology called carbon capture and sequestration, which will use fossil fuels, use like coal and natural gas, but capture the CO2 from the smokestacks, inject it underground. Because 15 years ago, I certainly thought it was the case that that would had a good chance of being cheaper because fossil fuels were so much cheaper than renewables 15 years ago yep. that uh, it would be still be cheaper to capture the CO2 from a fossil fuel power plant um, than it would be to, to, to build renewables. That seemed like a reasonable forecast is one I bet totally wrong. I was wrong. It was, that, that forecast is wrong. So this is really good news. Deploy and deploy and deploy renewables is, is, is the right answer. Oddly, there's actually been a bit of a, a, bit of a resurgence in carbon removal and uh, these types of ideas. I think it's a giant red herring. Uh, I think it, it only exists because of some ill-conceived government subsidies. The things that really happen is renewable deployment, continued solar deployment. People ask me, like, what can I do for climate change? The, you should absolutely buy an electric vehicle. Uh, if you live in the right area, particularly residential area, you should, you should do rooftop solar. Our grid right now, our, our grid for the country. How on earth are we going to get the grid for the country up to speed for electrification? In some ways, the outlook here is probably better than people think, and in some ways, it's worse. So it's better in the following sense. Coal plants are going to are, are continue to go offline, and they're all going offline, uh, basically, in this decade. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a fantastic thing. That is opening up a lot of transmission and a, and a lot of industrial sites that people are smart developers are just taking those old coal sites and turning them into 
converting them into battery connection sites or you know, interconnections for renewables, et cetera. So we have a lot of growth potential just in, in that replacement. And people should just continue to that, do that. And that's very, very good. Technologically, I don't think the grid needs massive upgrades like you sometimes read. The grid is actually a pretty sophisticated device. The key solution is just getting more intermittent, more, more storage type devices on it. Now, the place where I'm pessimistic is we do need new transmission built, uh, particularly because there are some very windy areas, very sunny areas that don't yet have uh, good transmission lines to the, the major load centers. And this is not a tech problem. This is just a political will and NIMBY problem, is that permitting, uh, permitting these things is grotesquely difficult. And that's a major problem. Actually, conventional environmental movement, that sort of environmental movement that they wrote, arose out of the 1960s, but that movement was really built on stop, 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 right? Stop building, stop building, stop building. But we have a new set of problems now, right? And the new set of problems is we need to we need to build a lot because we need to replace the entire fossil fuel infrastructure. We need to do that in the next 30 years. It really needs to be a massive yes in my backyard kind of for industrial development attitude toward permitting of new sites and particularly transmission lines. Is this going to happen as quickly as we need it to? I believe we will avert a sort of catastrophe. And there's a variety of reasons I think that's true. What I do not think we will achieve uh, various sort of various proclamations of mid-century decarbonization, net zero by 2050, or I think there's too much momentum in the system. There's, I mean, we 18% EV market share is fantastic. That still means over four out of five cars being bought today are gasoline or diesel cars that are going to be on the roads for 20 to 25 years, right? We still add a lot more, a lot more um, uh, gasoline infrastructure to the world economy every year than we do EV infrastructure to the world. Uh, the pace is, is slower than I think uh, it needs to be for mid-century decarbonization. I think it's accelerating. The reason we started Cobold is we were looking around at all the things to the energy transition, and we thought access to key materials would be a governor on the rate, and we're already seeing that. We're seeing that in commodity prices to some extent, but even more so if you spend time with auto OEM execs and ask them F4 150 Lightning. Yeah, so yeah, the F150 Lightning, right? There's like a three-year waiting list for that. Well, why not buy more? Why not make more cars, right? Like why there's so much demand? Why not increase supply? And they are increasing supply, but if you talk to them, they'll say, well, the issue is we need to buy X batteries by Y, you know, this many years ahead, and the battery suppliers won't supply as many as we need. And you go to the battery suppliers, you ask them, why is that? Why, why won't you sell them more? Well, we won't sell them more because we can't get enough cathode precursor material, enough anode precursor material. Okay, go to the refiners, ask them, why is that? Why, why are you uh, not supplying the battery makers with everything that they're asking for? And they say, well, because the mines aren't supplying us <laughs> with, as much, with as much raw materials. Are. So it's already happening that the rate of adoption is being governed by the slow rate of of new mine construction and development. Um, and so it's cobalt. that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to accelerate that, that process as much as we can by getting the best possible projects into the queue as soon as possible. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite. 
providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Kurt, I want to transition a little bit to you. You are a PhD from Harvard in Earth and Planetary Sciences. In plain English, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) Uh, That's a good question. It's basically physics at the Earth scale. So physics at like the kilometer scale. So I was a physics and philosophy major in undergrad and then uh, really wanted to work on energy problems. And energy, energy is first and foremost about infrastructure. Second, it's about natural resources. And third, it's about technology. And technology is kind of a distant third. Uh, Natural resources and infrastructure are significantly more important. The motivation to go to Earth and planetary science department, also sort of a geoscience department, is to think about Earth's resources on a global scale and think about the physics and chemistry of of how they assemble, what puts them together, how humans utilize them, and then how new technology can, can make their utilization more effective. My doctoral studies was on was, was on the physics and chemistry of CO2 sequestration, like I talked about earlier. That's that's where I spent a lot of time. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how CO2 migrate. If you, if you were to pump billions of tons of CO2 underground to keep it out of the atmosphere, how would that react with rocks in the, in, in the subsurface? How would it flow? Would it find pathways to the surface and escape? We've had many PhD turned entrepreneur CEOs. How do you think academics has changed or impacted your style of entrepreneurship? Cobalt has is very much at the interface of, of fundamental research and deployment of that technology. When we started Cobalt, I was adjunct. A lot of the original ideas, not so much the motivation, but the original ideas of what we'd actually do to improve the efficacy of, of the mineral exploration search problem came out of um, brainstorming sessions with a man named Jeff Cares, Professor Jeff Cares at Stanford. That relationship has flourished. We continue to support a whole bunch of researchers in his lab. And actually, we started a, an initiative together. It's called Mineral X. I encourage everyone to Google it. We're having a launch symposium next week. Uh, this will probably air after it, though. It's a really cool industry academic collaboration where we're working, we're trying to, working on all kinds of fundamental questions of how do we quantify uncertainty and make statistically rigorous predictions about things we can't see um, and incorporating all of the various types of indirect evidence and in fact, there's a paper that we published, and it's called Efficacy of Information in Mineral Exploration. Within nine months, we had used the insights from that paper in the field to target and discover large quantities of nickel and cobalt. I read this great line about cobalt that says, cobalt is going to fail more than it will succeed, but that you can still be an incredibly successful company, even with that failure. Talk a little bit about just how you mentally wrap your head around that um, and getting through failure. So the first is the unit economics of mineral exploration are superb. This is, this is, and there's no secret here. This is where the word Eureka comes from. If you make a discovery, you make a lot of money, right? You can make 500, 5,000 times your money by discovering a large new deposit of something. That's been known forever. This is why like gold mines are like an analogy for wealth, you know, springs and things like that, right? So what's the problem? Why isn't exploration a good business to just invest in? Well, it's not a good business to invest in because the success rate sucks, right? And the industry average success rate is well less than 1%. We 
we think it's probably we think it's probably about one in two hundred, something like that. So maybe wow. half, half a percent. So constantly fail. So if you invested in every exploration project, you'd kind of break even basically. Cobalt's entire uh, business proposition is that we're going to use uh, data much more effectively and invent new technologies and new techniques to improve that success rate. In rough numbers, our goal is about one in five. So to go from one in 100, one in 200, down to one in five. If we succeed in that goal of having 20% exploration success rate, we will create gobs of value for our investors and for the world. That's just very basic arithmetic. The question is, you know, do we succeed? And we won't know for many years if we can hit that, hit that success rate, although we are, we are on track. But that also means that we fail four out of five times, right? So wild, out of control success, grand slam kind of success, uh, we are still failing 80% of the time. So failure is absolutely built into our business. And it's something that we celebrate because we really, really weaponize the concept of failing fast, right? Because for us, marginal data is expensive. Marginal efforts are expensive. The opportunity cost of our people and our time is hugely expensive. So when we go out, when we have a new exploration hypothesis, the whole culture that we try to create around this is, okay, go falsify it. If anyone says, I'm looking for the, here's my uh, confirming evidence, right? We say, well, you know, I don't want you looking for confirming evidence. I want you to falsify your hypothesis. I, love I want you to lay out the hypothesis and then say, what evidence can you find that is perfectly inconsistent with this? And then go find that evidence. And when you find that, high fives all around. Celebrate, champagne, nailed it. Just last month, one of our geologists in Canada, a woman named Lucy, had an exploration hypothesis, staked a property, went on the property, had a very specific falsification criteria that she was looking for, found it, and condemned the project, all within about three weeks, and for basically zero dollars, basically just whatever her salary, maybe in a plane ticket or something, like, you know, effectively zero dollars. And we made a major big deal out of it, <laughs> major celebration. That is weaponizing failing fast, right? And then you're institutionalized, institutionalized the learning. You've increased your data set, your training set with good, true negatives, which you need a true negatives in your, in your training set. And we move on to the next one. I'm going to transition to the quick fire round. Number one, what interview questions you love to ask when you're trying to get to know somebody? I actually love to ask where people grew up. I like to know life story. Uh, it could, it, there's no right answer. Uh, there's no wrong answer, right? I love anything that gets at curiosity. I think it's the strongest single indicator of success. If I can find someone with burning curiosity, just a drive to learn for the sake of learning. So certainly questions about books that they've read and things like that are helpful. You can definitely tell a prepared answer from a better answer uh, when you ask those types of questions. I love that curtain on that note. What's a book that you've read that's changed your life of any kind? Best book I've read recently is a book called The Knowledge Machine um, by Michael Strebens, uh, a New York uh, University professor of the philosophy of science. He cracks what's called the demarcation problem uh, for the first time in the history of philosophy of science, which is what what is science and how do you distinguish science from everything else, from non-science. Strongly recommend that book. What is your biggest pinch me moment to date since writing Cobalt? We made a major discovery in Zambia about a year ago. I was in Zambia uh, recently and I was at our, at our at our site, which is very remote, uh, looking at the core that we had drilled. And uh, it was some very high grade, very high grade copper and cobalt. 
And uh, there's one chunk of the core that was sort of exceptionally high grade. It was basically almost pure uh, copper sulfide. So I was holding a chunk in my hand that was almost 50% copper by mass, which is not representative of the full thing, but it was just this one like incredibly dense nugget of copper that was naturally formed in the ground. And it was just like, wow. And, and it was it was, a, it was a one and a half kilometers deep, uh, incredibly difficult to detect. And we predicted where it would be inside the, well, we, we predicted where the full core would be and we were pretty much spot on. Uh, and that, that was a pinch me moment. A quote you live by, a quote that you love. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Credit goes to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who errs, who comes up short again and again uh, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually strives to do the deeds, spends their life, knows the great enthusiasms, knows the great devotions, and spends their life in a worthy cause, and who in the end, if they succeed, know the triumph of high achievement. But if they fail, at least they fail while daring greatly, such that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Last question. If there's one thing that you're excited about for the future, what is it? For cobalt specifically, we have made a major copper cobalt discovery. I think we're on the verge of a major nickel discovery and a major lithium discovery. We'll see. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. If things continue apace, there will be a time when there will be a new nickel mine, a new lithium mine, and a new copper mine producing copper, producing lithium, producing nickel, producing cobalt, all going into the EV supply chain. And that could happen within this decade, potentially. That will be a moment where when we know our efforts uh, will have been worthwhile. Kurt, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. What an incredible human and soul you are. And thank you so much for what you're doing for our planet. I'm so grateful um, to be a friend and tiny investor. Um, most importantly, everybody out there, please check out koboldmetals.com to learn more. And you can join us next week for Inc. the Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Kurt, we're rooting for you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. It was awesome to be here and love that you're uh, on the cap table. Thank you.